it definitely seems like uh, you can either activate those pathways through lifestyle changes, you know, uh, being eucaloric, exercising, sleeping, stress mitigation, all that stuff, or you can be metabolically unhealthy and or not institute any of those lifestyle changes and then pharmaceuticalize those pathways. Right, right now, I don't think you can do both. Um, yeah. So you kind of have to pick one. Um, and you, it's obvious which one I would prefer you pick. Um, but there is still some evidence to suggest that if you're not going to do those things, then maybe some of these, these, uh, these drugs can be beneficial. Welcome to the Metagenics Institute podcast, a place where you can hear from leading experts in health and wellness, from scientists and researchers to internationally recognized clinicians. Enjoy this insightful conversation with host Nathan Rose. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Metagenics Institute podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rose, and returning back with me today is Dr. Tommy Wood. Hey, Tommy. Hey, Nathan. Nice to be back. Yeah, thank you. Uh, likewise, it's been a it's been about twelve months, and <laughs> a lot's happened in the world um, over that period of time. So yeah. um, you're on the eve, I think, of an election. So I'm sure it's pretty mad over there. Oh yeah, it's um, it's going to be interesting. Probably either way. Uh, somebody said that this is the most divisive U.S. Uh, election in history, which yeah is almost certainly true. So we'll have to see how it goes. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's see. Today we're going to talk about uh, longevity and some of the research versus the, the I suppose the, the practical applications or the you know the feasibility of some of these strategies. Um, but before we do, perhaps if you could just maybe give um, the listeners a bit of a, a recap on who you are and and what you look at. Yeah, sure. So, so I am a research assistant professor at the University of Washington um, in Seattle. Most of my research is in neuroprotection, so looking at ways to treat the injured brain. Um, my sort of early academic work focused largely on the, uh, the injured neonatal brain, um, with various types of animal models, but I've increasingly been working in models of traumatic brain injury, uh, tr and trying to look at how multiple factors, um, such as early life exposures, maybe early life injury then affects later, um, later susceptibility or vulnerability to brain injury. Um, and obviously, you know, including some work looking at population data sets. So what can we look at um, in terms of biomarkers or the environment that may tell us something about how vulnerable uh, your brain is should you have some kind of injury? Um, at the same time, I've spent a good chunk of time in the last decade or so working with various groups of athletes. So I did that while I was in medical school um, and then as um, more of a coach uh, doing sort of functional medicine with athletes uh, during my PhD and then sort of uh, the, the next few years after that, um, I currently work with uh, sort of the majority of current Formula One drivers uh, looking at nutrition and lifestyle tactical tactics or strategies to try and optimize their resilience and performance. So I try and integrate information from you know, the kind of basic research, um, early life through to, uh, you know, performance and long-term health. And then obviously as those things intersect, that will start to inform uh, what might be important for, you know, both living and performing for a long and healthy life. Brilliant. So, yeah, that was one of the reasons why I reached out to you because you've got that really broad 
experience and knowledge from an MD to a researcher to working um, as a coach and with functional medicine. And also, I think somewhat agnostic to all this, when we look at um, longevity, which we will at the moment, the often researchers and advocates have their little, obviously, area of interest and Mm -hmm. that's their their hobby horse so it was nice to get someone who's yeah as i said agnostic and we can work, work through this objectively and and see if piece it all together hopefully and see where we're at and where the future's heading with um with longevity and, and um health span i suppose mm. so that my first question is about like there is this a bit of an obsession in some folk about you know trying to live to 120 150 mm. um and i'm not sure if it's you know they they consider the actual health span of that um, period. Like, so I suppose my first sort of area I want to discuss is this concept. What is you know what is the goal of longevity? You know, um, pursuits or um, is there trade offs between health span and, and lifespan? Yeah, that, that's a good question, and I think there is some overlap between the two. Obviously, the the longer your health span, so the longer you are an independent and healthy person. I think the more likely you are to have a long lifespan, right? So the longer you can live with good health, the the you know the greater the likelihood that you will live a longer time, just in in general. Um, but you're right that people, or some people who are obsessed with longevity, and it really does seem to be an obsession in, in a lot of um, sort of groups, you know, sort of various biohacking type arenas. Um, you know, they have some number in mind, like. I'm going to live to 180 um, is something yeah. that some people say, um, even though there's been no documented examples of humans living that long. Um, and there's still a, a huge amount of um, discussion, uh, active discussion in the field as to whether humans, like what the, do humans have a limit to their lifespan? Have we ever reached it? Um, and, you know, some people will say all the data suggests 120 is probably about the maximum human lifespan. Others will say using very similar data with different mathematical models, they'll say, well, actually, to us, the data suggests that there is no defined limit for human lifespan. And there are some people, you know, who are actively involved in this who say, or, and I genuinely think this is a bit of a crackpot thought, but they're like the, f- the first person to live to be a thousand years old has already been born. Like that's quite a significant statement, wow. right? Because <laughs> you've basically got to 10 X human lifespan um, <laughs> in the next few decades for, for that to happen. So um, yeah, the, the, the number is, is definitely something that those groups of people are, are highly focused on. But if you think about, the average person, and I think that's important because the average person probably makes up a, a good chunk of people listening to this podcast um, who just want to be, you, you know, live better, healthier lives um, for as long as possible. You know, if if they had a choice between living to 120 or further on, um, you know, maybe without really taking health span into consideration. Would they prefer to just live to 80, 85, 90, and then just like suddenly drop dead? And I, I think most people would probably choose the latter, um, myself included. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so that's that's where I think there's a bit of a disconnect between sort of the the leaders, maybe in in this arena, if you can call them leaders, versus what most people would would probably want. Um, but equally you could say that you always need a few pioneers to 
be be hopeful and you know actively looking into this just in case that this this is something that becomes an option and then it sort of trickles down and, and helps everybody's health you know for for as long as possible and that's obviously something that i'm very interested in is how can we make this as applicable to everybody such that everybody can live as long and as healthy a life as possible yeah absolutely all right so let's say that there um yeah a, a, a long life is also a healthier life mm. for the time being um so uh, i want to attack this from different angles or, or put things into context so um one way of looking at it is sort of like epidemiological looking at different populations probably the most um well cited well known or, or popular one is this uh, um idea of the blue zones mm-hmm. it's What's your views on on these populations and how accurate do you think that it is that they're long lived? Yeah, that's it's a great question. It's actually um, come up more recently, sort of the vera- the veracity of the data underlying this. Uh, but yeah, these are um, places like uh, Okinawa in Japan, Ikari in Greece, the Nicoyan Peninsula in Costa Rica, uh, the Seventh Day Adventists in California. Um, and then uh, Dan Butner went and visited all of these places and sort of tried, you know, which, which and these are the places where that have the the greatest sort of relative number of centenarians and supercentenarians, so people live to be 100 or 110, you know, per population, uh, you know, sort of number or density, and then tried to tie together like what factors you know, are involved in this kind of longevity. So there are things like having some kind of spiritual practice, some kind of um, frequent movement, um, probably never retiring, having having meal, you know, meals in a very, you know, socially connected manner or, you know, and having lots of social connections. There's been a huge, everybody always has a huge focus on what people eat. So they always think that it's like heavily plant-based and not much meat. That's kind of like what they've dragged out of the data, though some people will say, well, in Okinawa, that's not the case. They actually eat quite a lot of meat, generally from pigs. Um, so there's people have always contested whether that's an important factor. Um, and, you know, when you look at it, there's a fairly compelling case to say, well, do you know what? There are a lot of things here that probably are going to be um, associated with greater long-term health because these are maybe some of the populations where they still have what are more ancestral practices for them, you know, relative to their ancestry. Um, And it's going to include things like um, frequent movement, never retiring, um, social, like social connection, including social meals, probably a very high quality food because, you know, most of these Mm. guys are living off the land, you know, it's sort of, you know, farm or garden to plate um, almost. Um, And then, you know, uh, stress mitigation practices and all these kinds of things that we think are probably going to be important. They also are going to have more light during the daytime because they're usually outside, maybe working and moving, and then darkness at night uh, because these are some of the places where maybe they don't have a, a huge kind of westernized industrial infrastructure. Um, and so all of this, I think, is potentially important. Um, however, there was an interesting paper although I, I can't really call it a paper because as far mm. as I know, it hasn't been peer-reviewed and published. It was it was uh, put on a on BioArchive, which is sort of a preprint server uh, by Saul Newman, who's actually uh, down in Australia at the Australian National University. Um, and the, the paper's called Super Centenarians and the Oldest Old are Concentrated into Regions with No Birth Certificates and Short Lifespans. Um, so basically making the point or the case that 
in places that re reportedly have a large number of centenarians are actually places where they don't have good reporting of age and you know they actually don't have good average um, or you know they have low average lifespans which kind of goes against the whole idea there um, and it's interesting because it use it mainly uses data from US populations um, basically showing that when they started national uh, registries or when they started statewide registries of births they saw a dramatic decrease in the number of people who were supposedly living to 100 years old so basically suggesting that once you have more rigorous recording of births the number of people who think they're 100 years old goes down because actually they were just misreported or they were made, or mm. you know they were the, the data was inaccurate and then there was then there's some data from sardinia which is one of the one of the uh, blue zones uh, in italy where the likelihood of living to be over 100 is inversely correlated with the likelihood of li of of living to be 55 or to basically saying that the lower the average lifespan, the higher the number of centenarians in that right. region, which again, just is completely counterintuitive. Mm -hmm. However, like I said, it, it hasn't been formally published and, and, and probably because it's quite controversial. Yeah. Um, and uh, it also doesn't directly really deal with all the blue zones. There's like one small amount of data from Sardinia, but most of it is kind of an extrapolation from data in other places. Uh, and obviously the blue zones have like they made this long rebuttal about why you know all their data was actually robust and they and they sort of checked everything from multiple directions and multiple data sources to sort of ensure that people were really living as long as they said they were so it's a little bit up in the air um however i do think that there are a lot of principles that come out of the sort of what connects the lifestyle practices in the different blue zones that i think are probably going to translate to better overall health um in general if you're going to recommend them to people um however you know there's there's there should be a question mark over you know how good really is this data and i, I don't know the answer um and so definitely good questions have been asked here um and e each side sort of has their you know, like you said earlier, like Saul Newman has decided that the data is just terrible. The Blue Zones have decided that the data is great and it's all right. Um, so the answer is probably somewhere in between in between the two. Um, so, so yeah, th do I think that the Blue Zones are going to give us all the answers? Definitely not. But I do think there are some principles there that are probably going to be useful and are probably going to improve your, uh, your health if you start to employ some of them. And then, you know, as you do that, you know, you'll, you'll hopefully see some increased health span and, and therefore potentially lifespan as well. Yeah, well said. Yeah, I, I agree. I think we'll dive into particularly the, the dietary components in a moment because there's still a few little questions I have on that. Mm. But overall, I think, yeah, the, the general principles are, are pretty much common sense. And um, as you said, lymphing with your ancestral, I suppose, um, background, if you want to call it that. So you can't, it's hard to argue against that. But, it's, yeah, it's interesting to, to see the data or that proposed data published. Yeah. And by Saul. All right. Um, so another way of um, potentially looking for a signal is looking perhaps at like um, longitudinal studies where they'll measure like biomarkers in people mm. and either monitor longevity or, or mortality. Um, so is there any signal in the research there on potential biomarkers of ageing? Yeah. I think there are a few things that are 
are important. And, and one that comes up again and again is levels of inflammation. So those who have high sort of chronic, or it's technically low levels of chronic inflammation, that seems to be associated with increased mortality and reduced lifespan. And those, you know, when you look at centenarians and supercentenarians, they seem to have lower inflammatory signaling compared to people who don't live as long. Um, good metabolic health. So having, you know, uh, reason, you know, reasonably well-controlled blood sugar, both fasting and after meals, uh, and being able to respond to uh, a glucose or carbohydrate uh, bolus in a healthy manner. I think that's fair. Yeah, that's right. fairly well defined. Um, and then along with that, I think both lean muscle mass and strength uh, are very important predictors of um, longevity or reducing the risk of mortality. And then um, we, we know we were talking about this before, you know, you mentioned or you had in your list social connections and social isolation certainly seems to be um, associated with an increased risk of all-cause mortality. And at least part of it is going to be mediated through uh, a change in the immune system, sort of like an exaggerated inflammatory response that we seem to see in people who feel socially isolated. So it, so it may be functioning through that inflammatory pathway, which like we've already said, that sort of chronic low-grade inflammation seems to be associated with longevity. So um, yeah, uh, glucose metabolism or just overall healthy metabolism, uh, body composition and strength, and um yeah potentially social connection as well those those are probably um the the ones that i'm most interested in i think have the, the strongest um correlation with um mortality or longevity across multiple different populations yeah um just on the the body composition um and, and i know bmi is a pretty crude marker but um there is that controversy is that the, the j-shaped curve about um body mass index and longevity that mm. paradoxically they there's some research i'm not sure if it's been um, refuted now about being heavier later on in life could actually be protective i think one of the counter arguments is that people with like chronic diseases or smokers who tend to be lighter um obviously pass away so therefore the, the heavier ones are, are left so have you got any sort of views on this sort of paradox yeah yeah so this is the ob obesity paradox they call it and i think um like you said, there are, there are reasons why this makes sense. So the problem with BMI is it doesn't tell you anything about what your weight is made up of. So in the populations where you can study it, both fat mass and lean mass are independent predictors of mortality risk. So basically, the higher your fat mass and the lower your lean mass, the more likely you are to die. However, with BMI, there's kind of an intersection between the two. Um, and you're certainly right, the people who are frail and sarcopenic um who have a low lean mass you know they're they're going to be at the bottom end of the u-shaped curve and they're they're going to have increased mortality and then those who are you know very overweight or have a lot of fat mass they're going to have increased mortality so that's kind of where the the u-shape comes from but if you adjust for the amount of lean mass a lot of this starts to go away so you kind of you get rid of where you, you know, you stop seeing that paradox because a lot of it is mediated by the amount of lean mass that, that somebody has. Um, there's also one part of it, which is that depending on somebody's ancestral background, they may be able to get more or less fat. Um, and being able to get fat in an environment that is obesogenic is actually protective because 
your fat mass is basically your metabolic buffer. So if you're able to put on a lot of fat, that will help you stay metabolically healthy. Your, your metabolism will work ah, better right. for yeah. longer if you can just put on fat mass instead. However, um, and it's usually uh, white people are better at getting fatter than most other uh, people of different of, of most other ancestral backgrounds. So when you're in that environment, being able to be fatter is actually protective. Uh, whereas those people who are unable to get fatter then start depositing fat ectopically. So it ends up in the liver, in the pancreas, in the muscle tissue. And then that's where you get systemic insulin resistance and all that sort of bad stuff that happens after that. So all of those things can be why we see that paradox. So it's either driven by having more lean muscle tissue, which obviously skews the BMI, um, or just being somebody who can get fatter and therefore because you can get fatter, it provides you with some metabolic buffer. Interesting. Um, so another area I want to look at in terms of like biomarkers is this newer concept of um, epigenetic indications mm. of um, biological aging. So the, I think there's a few sort of iterations of it, but I think there's the Horvath clock is probably the, the main one. Can you describe what it is and how it relates to our chronological or biological age? Yeah, sure. So uh, biological age has become this great big thing in the longevity field because um what you know if we're thinking about aging or delaying aging slowing aging then when that happens you'd want to see a dissociation between your chronological age you know the age on your passport and the number of birthdays you've had versus your biological age which is how fast your cells are aging and ideally you want to be as far below you know, for a given chronological age, you want to be as far below a biological age as possible. So people have been looking at ways to measure biological age, um, either independent or sort of adjusted for what your chronological age is, um, depending on, on how it's done. And the idea is that every time you have a you know a DNA strand bake or you know some kind of um, some, some damage to your DNA then in order to fix it, you have to move uh, methyl groups around. And these are basically some of the ways that the DNA is held together. And uh, the expression of certain genes is regulated often by methylating certain parts of the DNA. And so when you're repairing this DNA, um, this is nicely uh, sort of, I first heard this from a, a, in a talk by David Sinclair. He came to the University of Washington to give it, and he has a nice paper on this. Um, there's Kane, Kane and Sinclair where they talk about this. And the idea is that when you're repairing the DNA, you have to move methyl groups around so that you can get in there, repair it, and then you move them back. But when you move them back, you never quite move them back correctly. And then over time, you see these shifts in where DNA is methylated. Um, and so this can be measured um, using one of these epigenetic um, biological age measures. So Steve Horvath probably made the first one. Um, there's the, um, uh, then there's the Morgan Levine is, is probably the other main one. Uh, and she actually did her PhD in, in Steve Horvath's lab. And now she's, now she's at Yale doing sort of running her own research lab. Um, and these basically look at the methylation on 350 odd, what we call CPG islands, which are basically parts of the DNA that uh, are differentially methylated. And, from these, like the, the pattern of the methylation correlates with the age of the person, uh, but also, you know, then also correlates with 
um, the biological age rather than the chrono chronological age. And if you have a greater biological age relative to your chronological age, you have an increased risk of most diseases and overall mortality. Um, and so this is kind of the gold standard for, for biological age. Um, and there are other ways to do it that I think are potentially more interesting because they're more accessible and cheaper. Um, but the the main thing that, that we haven't really figured out with biological age, and it's something that I'm I'm very interested in, but the main thing that we haven't really figured out is how this stuff changes over time. So when you get a whole group of people and you look at their biological age, and then and you've done this with some kind of public data set, and then you look at their long-term mortality, and this has obviously had to be data, data that's collected over years or decades to sort of look look forwards and see who gets you know what disease who gets what cancer who gets you know who dies you've only looked at biological age at one snapshot of time in each individual person whereas what you really want to know is the slope of the curve like how fast is it changing in a given individual and can i do things to to change that so you can look at biological age and say those who do more exercise have a relatively lower biological age. However, does that mean that if I do more exercise that my biological age will sort of age less slowly or less quickly, more slowly? Um, and the answer is we don't know that yet because we haven't looked at it longitudinally in enough people to see if I do this thing, will this reduce my biological age relative to my chronological age? So we can, we can you know, assume that that's going to be the case, but it hasn't really been tested in, in a big group. Um, so the the reason why we're developing or people are developing these biological age metrics is so that they can be tested in longevity trials, essentially, because if you want to implement something uh, in a trial and see if people live longer, you usually have to, you have to keep that trial going for decades and mm. it's never going to happen. So what we want instead is some kind of proxy that's easily measurable and relatively accurate so that you can implement something for maybe one year and see whether it changes the rate of aging based on biological age. And then we can say, yes, we therefore think that were you to do this for 20 years, you'd end up living a longer time. Fascinating. So just with the these epigenetic um, maps or clocks, um, they're not as focused on what genes are switching on and off. They've just um, identified these 350-odd um, genes that get methylated and just the the drift over time, is it, that yeah. from early age the, the pattern changes and the rate of change is um, proportional, I suppose, to the to the biological aging. So they're not so interested in, like, uh, say, gene 131 is, I don't know, insulin signaling or something. It's more just the, the overall pattern as a, as a marker of aging. Yeah, exactly. So they're not looking at, say, what's being expressed. They're not looking at the transcriptome or anything like that. They're just looking at the overall pattern, which does shift over time with aging. And as that shift happens, then, you know, more and more so the risk of various chronic diseases and death increases. Yeah. yeah. Uh, are these tests commercially available now? I think I've seen some online. Yeah. So there are a few different people who do them. Um so Elysium, um, they actually have, you know, who do, they do a, a nicotinamide riboside supplement. They have Morgan Levine on one, on their scientific advisory board. And so they they sell one. Uh, in the UK, Chronomics sells one. Uh, there's another company called True Diagnostic that does one. 
Um, so yeah, there are a lot of people now selling this commercially, and it's you know a few hundred dollars um, yeah. US uh, uh, to to test it. So it's you know again, it's it's not necessarily available to sort of the the mass market yet. Sure, and we don't really know, or science, or the the providers don't really know like how to change the clock we can just measure measure and do an intervention and and repeat the measure i suppose yeah so there are some studies that look at given interventions and methylation patterns so probably the the best understood one is that if you're a smoker there's there's a specific methylation pattern associated with smokers and then if you stop smoking then that pattern goes away so that's kind of one Uh, piece of evidence to say yes if you have one pattern that's associated with one lifestyle risk factor that's associated with disease risk and then you change that lifestyle factor the methylation pattern changes with it and therefore you'd hope that that's also associated with, with improved outcomes and we obviously we know that if you quit smoking you know within 10 or you know 10 or 20 years you sort of have managed to s- slow the, the the aging curve sort of goes back to what it would have been previously so you may have decreased you know your overall lifespan a little bit you can never get that back but you can sort of correct in terms of how the sort of the speed of aging afterwards um sure so there is some evidence particularly from smoking to suggest that you can change these patterns with lifestyle uh, interventions and therefore that would be associated with improved health span uh, but you know what people are really going to be interested in is does this drug do it or does this diet do it or does mm. this exercise do it and we just don't have that information yet um there was one very small trial that they did in germany where they were trying to reverse thymic involution which is basically the the slow decay of your thymus um as you get older and and the reason for that is is that basically one, one of the, the core sort of signals in aging is a loss of T cells and certain T cell subsets. And the thymus is really important for, for producing those. And as you get older, you basically lose thymic volume and function. And so you get less of these T cells and that's sort of like a signal of aging. And so I think it was in 10 or 12 men, they did, I think they gave some zinc and some DHEA and vitamin D maybe. And then they followed them for a year and looked at various things but one of the things they did is that they did the Horvath clock at the beginning and at the end and what they saw was that the biological age didn't change over that year so essentially you could say that by doing all of those things ah. those guys gained a year right they didn't get older biologically but the problem is that you know there's no control group we don't know how repeatable these samples are like is there you know, what's the error in terms of years in an individual? So, like, that's probably the closest that we have so far in terms of somebody trying to do something and test it longitudinally. Um, yeah, sure. So we're just, like, right at the beginning of all of this. Okay, yeah. Um, actually, I think Cara Fitzgerald, a naturopath from uh, Connecticut, she, who's going to be on this podcast uh, last year, I think she's just completing a trial looking at, yeah, again, sort of, like, lifestyle factors and, and methylating nutrients or mm. ad- methylating adaptogens, as she calls them. Um, and I think they're about to publish on that. It was only, again, a small trial, and I'm not sure if it – I don't think it was controlled. So, mm. But you've got to start somewhere. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, what are broadly some of the, uh, I suppose, molecular or um, biological drivers of aging that the researchers have discovered? Yes. So, again, d- depending on who uh, who you ask – 
uh, there's there obviously ends up being a slightly different um, sort of skew in terms of what what people think uh, is most important. So, like there was a, a a paper that I was reading recently that basically said that all the all the interesting uh, pathways that are relevant to um, that are relevant to aging, like they all converge on autophagy, which is the right, you know, which is the uh, process by which your cells essentially recycle themselves, or you know, you take damaged proteins, you take damaged organelles, and you sort of break them down, and then you then you recycle them. And like, th- there's technically some truth to that because if you think about the things that are, you know, the the pathways that have been directly uh, really investigated with respect to longevity, they they do all in some way converge on um, sort of uh, what what might be a temporary reduced energy state that then promotes cell recycling and repair rather than a pro growth state, which sort of inhibits that process. So the things that we're thinking about are like uh, the mTOR pathway, uh, the, the mammalian target of rapamycin um, versus AMPK uh, or AMP kinase, which is activated in sort of fasting and exercise states. Um, and then also things like uh, the situans, which are activated by compounds like resveratrol um, and which sort of uh, act and can, can go towards mitochondrial biogenesis as well. And then maybe something like FOXO, which, which is another uh, pathway associated with, with mTOR and, and activating sort of some of these longevity and stress, you know, stress resilience associated proteins. So all of them do kind of play into autophagy in some way. And that's kind of a nice way to, to look at it. Whether autophagy is the reason why all of them are, um, you know, associated with, with, uh, with longevity, uh, we don't necessarily know. Uh, but they, you know, in my mind, uh, generally converge on the uh, sensing of um, nutrient status um, and the hormonal signaling associated with nutrient status. So like how much energy is there in a cell? Um, is there too much? Has it been reduced? And then also what's the circulating, you know, glucose, insulin, IGF-1 from protein, you know, amino acids associated with that, with that, you know, and that sort of, again, feeds largely into mTOR. So it's, it, it's generally to do with um, like flux of nutrients and the nutrient states of the cell. And then whether it's in, you know, more of like a pro growth state, which can also result in something called senescence, where basically the cell kind of stops growing and dividing, but just sort of like sits there and, you know, sends out inflammatory cytokines uh, versus, uh, you know, sort of recycling and repairing itself and trying to be a sort of a, a useful member of the of the body's cell community all right so yeah um it's a very complex area but my, my sort of understanding with the the views in aging is the yeah we've got these like senses whether it's and this is where i sometimes feel like it's a bit of a a moot point to selecting a certain uh, macronutrient because whether it's you know fats or carbohydrates or amino acids it seems like the cells always sensing the energy as you said status and availability and flux mm. and typically i get the sense that you know aging is this surplus of fuels that the body just can't sort of metabolize adequately and that and uh, and when you're in that sort of fed state it inhibits the sort of cellular housekeeping whatever term the autophagy mm-hmm. 
Um, is that a bit of a, is that a reasonable sort of framework? Yeah, no. To, I, yeah, I, I, to frame I, it. Yeah, I, I think so. And, and in reality, it kind of also informs um, why we see sort of the rates of aging and chronic disease that we do and also why we see the things that people are suggesting either pharmacologically or lifestyle based to try and overcome that and it's because essentially this uh, a state of chronic overnutrition um, and that involves what you're putting in as well as what you're not using um, sort of activates a, a shift in these pathways that you know decreases so the housekeeping you know, sort of puts you in it more of a, a, a pro-growth state or at least a pro-inflammatory kind of state because that shifts over time as well because as you get older, you get what we call anabolic resistance. So you become actually less yeah. good at growing tissues, um, which is potentially a problem, uh, you know, particularly if you're trying to maintain or gain muscle tissue. Uh, but that's essentially what it is. You know, so all of this is just, cr- you know, a, a chronic um, over um exposure of the cells to continuous nutrients that are never are essentially never used and then are there in surplus and then all of these things sort of come down after that right all right so let's look at um firstly yeah like dietary exclusion or restriction of of um calories and 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 macronutrients then maybe we can move on to like sort of calorie restriction mimics like resveratrol and Mm. nr etc so yeah probably the the best known um method of uh, prolonging life is caloric restriction um demonstrated through different species and so forth so um i suppose you can if you can comment on its efficacy but i suppose i want to just also challenge that like it um i don't know about like compliance like it and that was the other thing say with the uh the blue zones it's like eight to eighty percent full Mm-hmm. We also know we've also got like homeostatic mechanisms that you know make us eat to satiety, and if you, I, I don't know, I sort of wonder maybe it's just me that I'm I'm hopeless at fasting and <laughs> restricting foods, etc. <laughs> um, I suppose you know how much is it is you know necessary, or is it on the flip side, is it more that we're overeating because of the hyperpalatable foods? It's you know easier to overeat calories, but you know like a whole food diet, you typically find it difficult to overeat. So. I suppose the the benefit. What's the benefits and feasibility of restricting calories below sort of normal levels? Yeah, and I think this is this is really important because context is is super critical. So you, you're right. the The modern processed diet is very calorie dense and nutrient poor. And there's some nice work that suggests that if we're eating calorie dense foods, it basically stops us being able to regulate our satiety and we end up overeating so uh, there's there's number on it if your if your meal is more than 1.5 calories per gram um then you basically can't regulate satiety in right. a normal way and that's most refined fat and carbohydrate based foods basically all of those fall into that um and and that's what most people are eating so in that setting if if i restrict how much you can eat Am I going to see improved health? Absolutely. Like, of course. Um, and there's some very nice data in primates that shows that when you feed them what is essentially a cheesecake diet, um, it's um, lard and some other refined fat and sucrose. If that's what you feed them, if you feed them 70% of that rather than 100% of what they would normally eat, 
yes, they live longer and they're you know, metabolically healthier and they gain less weight. Um, and so in that setting, yes, caloric restriction is, benefic- is beneficial. If you were to take a healthy person with good body composition and then restrict them by 70%, which is usually, or by 30%, down to 70% of baseline, is that going to be associated with longevity or an increase in health span? I really don't think so. Um, and when you look at the effects of caloric restriction, actually, it's funny because when it sort of pops up in the, the media or even in some papers, they say that caloric restriction is the uh, intervention that you know has been proven to improve longevity across species. And that's not really true because when you look at the rodent data particularly, the response to caloric restriction is very dependent on the uh, the strain of rodent and sometimes the sex of the rodent as well. And there was some nice work that Steve Alstad did. He's at uh, University of Alabama in Birmingham, um, which looked at, rather than look at these, these highly inbred, very genetically homogeneous uh, strains of rodents, which is what most rodent research is done in. Like the vast majority of uh, animal research is done in a single strain of mouse, the C57 black six, um, which basically just skews everything because there's a lot of interesting stuff about the black six, ma- black six mouse. Like it's one of very few mammals where the females live less long than the males because they have a mutation in an antioxidant pathway. Um, so like that's the one mouse that we use for almost everything and even then the longevity doesn't make sense because it has this sort of weird quirk anyway so steve alstad (laughs) took um essentially wild mice so these are outbred heterogeneous mice and he exposed them to caloric restriction and what he saw was that a third lived longer um a third lived just as long and a third died earlier Um, and I've heard him say that he would expect the same thing to happen in humans. So be it because of various other backgrounds, because of our, you know, various background of health, maybe how much additional weight, uh, you know, or energy we're carrying on our bodies, you know, different people are going to respond to caloric restriction, uh, in different ways, just like, uh, if we were mouse or uh, if we were mice, and that's kind of the prediction anyway. And it certainly seems if it's going to be beneficial, it seems to be beneficial if you start it later in life. So if you calorically restrict an animal like throughout yeah. its entire lifespan, well, that's definitely a bad thing. Um, and so a lot of it is going to be instituting caloric restriction after a lifetime of, of overeating, essentially ad, ad libitum eating, we would call it, has caused some degree of metabolic dysfunction, you know, weight gain, that kind of stuff. And then if you restrict calories so that you lose weight, body fat particularly i'm more interested in losing body fat um you're going to get an improvement in health absolutely and so there is some data to support that in humans there was the calorie trial which was caloric restriction in uh people with uh obesity and yeah if they restricted calories and they stuck to it then they lost weight and their metabolic health improved um so i think that if you're in the setting of you know having excess body fat and some kind of metabolic dysregulation, reducing caloric intake such that your body composition improves and your metabolic health therefore improves. I mean, of course, that's 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 going to improve your health span and your lifespan. I'm certain. However, in somebody who you know is strong and fit and healthy, if you then restrict calories for them, I'm really not convinced that there's going to be any any um, long term benefit. And I joke that 
caloric restriction doesn't make you live longer. It just makes it seem longer. Um, <laughs> yeah. And that's certainly how I would feel about it. And so again, that's, that's maybe my, my personal bias. Um, but what you see again and again in the research is that people take something that benefits the disease state and then they assume that in somebody who's healthy, there's going to be an, there's going to be a similar benefit. And I would argue that actually we see the opposite, which is often that if you take, you know, particularly pharmacologically, and maybe we'll talk about some of that. If you take something that improves health in the disease state, state, say types of diabetes or insulin resistance, metabolic syndrome, obesity, and it improves health in that situation, if you then apply it to somebody who's doing lots of different multiple, lots of different lifestyle factors that are associated with better health, then you know, actually taking that drug may inhibit some of the benefits that you get from your exercise or these other things that you're trying to do. So the the kind of the big lesson for me has always been that, you know, the things that work in the disease state, we can't immediately assume that then applying them to somebody who's, you know, otherwise healthy is going to be beneficial. And there are some examples where it's actually the opposite. It's detrimental um, just because of the, the pathways that, that they're affecting and interacting with. Yeah, it's fascinating. Really well said. Sort of, if it ain't broke, don't sort of fix it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Metabolically well. Yeah. Um, so there's, I suppose, little variations. Obviously, caloric restriction can be difficult um, to adhere to. So the, I suppose, this is maybe the the rationale for these quote unquote newer type of interventions, like uh, you know, time restricted feeding or the sixteen eight diet or the mm. alternate day fasting or the, the fasting mimicking diet. I mean. In part, they're all reducing calories. It's just doing it less, I suppose, frequently, and maybe it's easier to, to sustain. But um, each little flavor does, to some degree, purport that it's affecting some sort of metabolic pathway like IGF mm-hmm. or insulin. What's, yeah, I suppose your big picture views on these different types of um, fasting approaches for, you know, is it helpful for um, healthy mm-hmm. aging? Yeah, so so I guess we can if we if we if we're not talking about manipulating individual macronutrients, we can maybe talk about like protein and yeah, carbohydrate restriction afterwards. Yeah, moment, but, yeah, yeah. yeah, but if, if we're talking about just like restricting the the, the time window, um, yeah, I think there is some data to suggest that you, you know doing that will you know improve weight loss will improve weight loss or will, will allow for some fat loss, and th- then doing that. Um, improves metabolic health and so almost all of it seems to be to do with how much have you reduced caloric intake how much has that affected your body composition and therefore the the downstream metabolic benefits of that there doesn't seem to be a really strong improvement in say metabolic health beyond that so there is some data to suggest that say early time restricted feeding so most of your eating uh, say from 8 a.m to uh, 4 p.m. or 2 p.m. sort of early in the day versus later in the day has some improvements in terms of metabolic health, even if you eat the same number of calories. And there is some data to suggest that that's better, but a lot of it is like a statistical, a statistically significant difference, but mm. like a physiologically or clinically like meaningless difference. So yes, like the statistics say it's better, but does it really make that much of a difference? It probably doesn't. Um, and then if we sort of go even further, you know, people are doing multiple day, you know, three, five, seven plus day fasts. Um, yes, that's probably going to, you know, activate autophagy and some of these other pathways. But is it going to be better than somebody who eats a eucaloric amount 
uh, and maybe within a, a reasonable window, eight to 10 hours a day, and is regularly exercising, which, which is the best and fastest way to upregulate autophagy. Um, again, we don't really have good evidence to suggest that it will. So, you know, if you are somebody who finds it difficult to restrict your diet in some way every day, um, and by restrict, I mean just not eat a, st a standard Western diet as it appears in front of you. Um, then, you know, if once a month you, but you find it okay for once a month to fast for three or five or seven days and you find that beneficial, that's great because, but, it, but most of the, most of the benefit is coming from reducing your caloric intake, not because of like some magical effect of, of fasting. Um, and, you know, I, again, if somebody is in, good metabolic health in you know good shape um you know good body composition does adding extensive fasting on top of that dramatically improve their long-term health you know my guess is it probably won't uh, but again i'm very ready to be proven wrong once somebody actually tests that because it hasn't really been done yet yeah yeah so just to sort of underscore that point it's probably what i'm trying to one one point I'm trying to get is this, this idea of autophagy, where where people fast and they, they have, I feel like they've got this very binary view, like no calories, you've got maximum autophagy, and mm. then as soon as you have like a, a dash of milk and a cup of tea or something, <laughs> then autophagy <laughs> switched off forevermore. Um, but is it more the area under the curve? Like if you're having a, a eucaloric diet and as you said, active, you're probably activating autophagy. You know, your net result is probably very similar to someone who may fast for three days. Then I'd imagine I'd pretty much gorge for another three after that to compensate. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, is autophagy binary or is it analog? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it, no, it, it's definitely analog. It's it's, it's always going to be on a sliding scale, and it's going to depend massively from tissue to tissue and like what is happening at what moment in time. And a lot of what we're doing is extrapolating again from mouse studies, which you know, you pick pick the strain that you like that responds to, responds to caloric restriction in the way that you want it to, and then you know pick an arbitrary time scale and try and apply it to humans. Like it's it's basically impossible because we still don't know what period of fasting, say, and we'll go with complete fasting. What period of complete fasting in mice is associate is like is equivalent to what period of fasting in humans? And so, like, if you fast a mouse fully for one or two days, that mouse is going to lose 20% of its body weight and then it's going to die. Um, and, like, that just doesn't happen in humans unless you fast mm. them for weeks. So, like, the timescales are just we, – we don't we, – we just don't know how they're comparable. So some people will say that, you know, one day in a mouse is three or five or seven days in a human, but we don't necessarily know. Um, and at the same time – right? You're not going to turn these pathways off just by putting any calories into the system, right? The, if you think about, um, you know, we've talked about this network of AMPK and M mTOR um, and all the other associated uh, proteins that they, they continuously integrate all the signals that are going on. So if you, you know, you may have a small number of calories, but you also did some aerobic exercise, right? What's the net effect on, on the mm. network? Right, that's going to be much more important rather than you know is any or you know any going to be de detrimental, and there's really no evidence for that. Um, and again, part of the problem is that people who are pro fasting, and again, I have nothing against fasting, but I just I don't think it's necessarily we don't have the evidence yet to suggest that it's this magical, you know, autophagy, 
you know, activator and regulator because we don't know what period of time is required to, to get a significant effect. Um, you know, but what, what they'll do is there are some studies where they do some fasting in humans and then they look at uh, the mRNA, the transcription of genes in some cells circulating in the blood, PBMCs, peripheral uh, blood mononuclear cells. And then they'll see an upregulation of genes that we know are associated with autophagy. And then they'll say, well, look, fasting increases autophagy in humans. But that is not the same thing, right? Just because you measured uh, a transcript of a gene that may make a protein that may be associated Mm. with an autophagy pathway in a blood cell, like you have no idea how that actually relates to physical autophagy, like the, the breaking down and recycling of proteins, say, in your brain or your muscle tissue or your liver or your heart or wherever it is that you're you're thinking about. So like we're just far too quick to extrapolate really quite terrible data uh, to yeah. humans to 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 um to suggest that these things are beneficial. And again, if you know fasting for three or five or seven or days, you know once or once a month or once a year whatever if that fits with you and it feels good for you and this is probably an, another thing that that's going to be important like if you think that that's going to be beneficial and you feel good doing it mm. then it's probably going to benefit you but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's the the fast thing that did it yeah great yeah i might come back to that perception thing shortly <laughs> um and i just one last little final comment like i'm not entirely sure and, I'm, and you probably know way but much better than me but autophagy is necessarily a positive thing i think on some cancers there's upregulation of autophagy so to have that sort of sweeping statement could be yeah and and, and uh, in the brain uh, as well as a big thing and you see um you see autophagy happening in in brain cells in neurons after an injury um and uh, interestingly in in my uh my my sphere of research so looking at the neonatal brain um there have been people who've given something to inhibit autophagy uh, and people who've given something to activate autophagy, and both of those have been neuroprotective after <laughs> injury. <laughs> so you can both upregulate and downregulate the process and see benefit, uh, which again, just like shouldn't shouldn't make any sense. But this this does tell us that um, often it's not necessarily a good thing, um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a bad thing. Um, but you're right in in the setting of some kind of disease process, often the cell is undergoing autophagy in order to try and survive um so if it's associated with a detrimental process like a cancer or a brain injury that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a bad thing um but it's also not always a good thing which is when we've always just been saying you know more autophagy is better but like we have no evidence that that's the case either yeah fascinating all right, so <laughs> caloric restriction is confusing. Now let's move on to um, macronutrient um, because, again, a lot of controversy and polarizing views essentially on um, particularly like protein we might start with. So, mm. um, yeah, there's arguments either for more protein or, or less protein for health and longevity. So, <laughs> um, yeah, discuss. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I'm definitely in the pro protein camp. I'm just I'll, I'll just stake my flag in the ground before before I start, <laughs> so, so that everybody knows where yeah. my bias where my bias is because all of this is, is biased, um, unfortunately. Um, so there is some data again from rodents, uh, and again um, strain specific that protein restriction increases lifespan, and then they've kind of 
And, they, and they've, they've also done this in C. elegans, which is the nematode worm, and Drosophila, which are fruit flies. Um, and, you know, and those are kind of the, the model organisms we start with, and then we work our way up to rodents, and then maybe some, some higher animal species before we try and translate something to humans. And so across those, protein restriction, particularly methionine restriction, so the um, amino acid that's generally found much more abundantly in animal foods rather than plant foods, if you restrict methionine, you see an increase in lifespan. Uh, and again, the data isn't perfect, but that does seem to be the case. However, you know, methionine kind of sits in an interesting part of metabolism because it's a precursor for homocysteine. It's like directly mm -hmm. related into the methylation cycle. Um, so obviously requires, you know, adequate nutrients for that whole cycle to turn correctly. Um, methionine is uh, detected by mTOR through something called SAMTOR. So it's s methionine. Uh, target of of rapamycin, All right. um, and so so they think that that's that's one of the reasons why methionine might feed into that. Uh, homocysteine itself may also activate mTOR, um, and again we talked last time about why homocysteine in itself isn't necessarily all bad, but I think in a given individual, if because of various imbalances in nutrient status um, and intake of various amino, various amino acids, you may have higher uh, homocysteine relative to what your balance point would be. Um, and then that may be detrimental. Um, and so the, the important balancing amino acid seems to be glycine, which is, again, important for some of those pathways. And in those same models, if you either supplement with, um, a, so if you, if you just have, you know, just a regular diet, and rather than restricting my, uh, methionine, you supplement with uh, glycine, you see the same effect. So, and then if you add methionine to the diet and you think that's going to make it worse, if you give additional glycine, you don't see that detrimental effect. So ah. I think it's just an imbalance in uh, some of those intakes. And so, yes, I think it's probably important that we have more glycine intake. And so that's like, you know, collagen and gelatin and all those connected tissues and things like that. Um, it's probably going to balance some of that pathway out. So that's kind of where I've landed. Um and I'm not anti-animal protein, but I do think that most uh, populations who have had an animal-heavy diet eat the whole animal, which is going to include a much more balanced intake of amino acids. Uh, whereas, you know, the modern human just likes to focus on the muscle meat, which is much more rich in methionine and has less glycine. Uh, yeah. Additionally, you can get more glycine by eating more plant-based proteins like nuts and beans and things they have you know relative to their methionine content have more glycine so i think it's just a much more it's a more balanced amino acid intake and you know as soon as you do that i think this whole problem uh, this whole problem goes away yeah interesting uh, i like <laughs> interventions that are more prescriptive and inclusive rather than restrictive <laughs> yeah. it's a bit easier to follow and, and it's um, worth, while we're talking about this i can talk about my least favorite paper of all time um, <laughs> which was Man, published in, in cell metabolism in 2014 and unfortunately so Morgan Levine is like this, you know, god of the science of biological age. She is also first author on this like trashy, terrible paper about protein and longevity that was published in Cell Metabolism in 2014. I blame Walter Longo because he was the senior author. Um, and basically, in one part of it, they looked at protein intake from NHANES, the National Health and Nutrition Examination yeah. Survey in the US, which people probably heard of. They looked at protein intake and then they looked at uh, later disease risk and they basically said that if you're below 65, more protein is associated with increased mortality risk. If you're above 65, it isn't. 
Um, but when you really look, when you really dig into the data, this is what I find most fascinating about these studies, um, is that if you look at the high protein group, they were supposedly eating like 20 something percent of their calories from protein. Um, the, like, if you look at their waist circumferences, all of these people were obese, but they reported eating 1500 calories a day. <laughs> that is physically impossible, right? Yeah. These, these people probably under, under, under recorded their intake by at least 50%. Yeah. Right. And so what's the other 50% going to be in the U S is going to be protein, poor processed carbohydrates and fats. Right. So like all of this is, is a statistical artifact based on terrible uh, dietary reporting of data. And then, you know, this is the paper, one of the papers that people hold up to say, look, protein intake makes, you know, increases your risk of death and, and, and disease. And it's just, it's a hundred percent nonsense. It's like, it's terrible. Like it should never have been published. I don't know how you can get away with that nonsense. Mm, fascinating um just on protein i haven't looked at this for a, a long while but the, there's also that theory about insulin like growth factor one mm. um being elevated in um you know decreased lifespan and protein stimulates that um my vague recollection is again it's probably like um hyperglycemia like a, a small incursion fluctuation from a meal is a lot different to you know area under the curve or, or base, baseline levels of IGF one, but yeah, I'll let you um, you know articulate that. So IGF one is that linked to protein intake, and what's the relationship with um, longevity or, or increased aging? Yes. Yeah, so, so again, in in this same um, in the same paper, they looked at IGF one level in these different groups and saw that you know in the higher protein group they had higher um, IGF one levels. I mean, and the the problem obviously being that I think that. Uh, you can't relate that to protein anyway, at least in that study. Um, and, and IGF one, uh, you know the you know the amount that you have is directly linked into insulin signaling as well. So so like carbohydrate intake certainly feeds into that into that um, into that pathway as well. Um, and but IGF one does seem to be associated like as a, as a pathway is associated with longevity. So there are families. Where they have some kind of mutation, either in an mm. IGF one or its re or its receptor, and they live a very long time, they don't get cancer, but they're also very short, um, right? Because IGF one is required for growth. So, um, you know, there are these you know genetic um, populations where you can identify this problem in this pathway, and yes, they do live a long time, and they don't seem to get much cancer. On the other side, you can't. You could also say that, you know, there are conditions where we have really high amounts of, of IGF-1 produced. So acromegaly is uh, a, a cancer, the pituitary gland, where you get a lot of growth hormone released and growth hormone goes to the liver, stimulates IGF-1 production. They do have a slightly increased risk of cancer, but it's really not that not that dramatic and actually quite right. surprising. So they have a particularly an increased risk of colon cancer. And these guys get insulin resistant because of the high levels of, of growth hormone. So like part of it could be the glycemic regulation part of it could be the growth hormone itself but these these people don't die like super early like full of cancer necessarily so it's kind of like a, a slight a slight against like the igf1 being the, the all um encompassing uh, problem um however there is a u-shaped curve of igf1 and mortality and it's been shown quite nicely uh so if you have high igf1 yes that does seem to be associated with an increased risk of cancer and potentially of mortality um, and so, and, but again, like the, once you adjust for everything else, like age and sex and all those other things, then if you're in like the top 
10% of IGF-1, maybe 5% of IGF-1, it's maybe like a 25% increased risk of, risk of death. It's not like massive. It's not like 10x. Sure. Um, and then you see the same thing at the bottom end. And actually, you see probably in, you know, a, a worse effect of having very low IGF-1 because there you're psycho- sarcopenic. Um, you probably have low bone density. That That's the person who's going to fall, break a hip, get pneumonia, and die in, in hospital. That's essentially you know what happens when you break a hip. Uh, if, you, if you're over, you know, if you're into your 70s and 80s, you fall and break a hip, you have a 50% chance of death in the year following. Um, so low IGF-1 is bad. High IGF-1 probably is bad as well. Um, however, like eating things that stimulate that pathway are not bad in and of themselves. And you can easily, you can measure your IGF-1. And as long as you're somewhere in the middle of the normal range, like plus or minus, like mean plus or minus one standard deviation for your age, that's great. You don't need to worry about it anymore. And And I think that, you know, it's only very rare people that are going to be, uh, you know, outside of that. And both high and and low are bad. Um, and I don't think that, you know, eating a load of protein is going to move you into the top 5% that's going to increase your risk of death. There's no evidence to support that. Um, and particularly as you get older, like we talked about um, anabolic resistance, which is basically that you need more protein in order to get the same um the same amount of muscle growth or you know muscle yes you know either to grow it or to maintain it and so you know as you get older therefore you know you can have more protein to get less of a a pro-growth response uh so actually you know these things it's going to be beneficial to eat more protein as you get older because that's going to support your muscle mass muscle mass and actually you'll get less of an igf1 and mTOR response which is what everybody's trying to (laughs) you know (laughs) warn you against um, so, so I think particularly as you get older, more protein is important. And it's actually, if there are some detrimental effects, which I don't necessarily um, really worry about, because again, total caloric intake, you know, protein and carbohydrates, insulin signaling, all of this feeds in. Uh, and if you're in good metabolic health and you have good uh, body composition, then again, I think this is kind of a kind of a moot point. Okay, great. thank you. Um, which may be the answer to this next area we'll look at is the, the carbohydrates. So there's equal, if not more, interest in um, carbohydrates and insulin secretion, and we've covered this mm. a little bit in the podcast. And, um, yeah, there's a spectrum. Obviously, there's a lot of um, people who are overweight and have insulin resistance, um, but then on the other side of this a spectrum, um, particularly maybe in the, the functional medicine area, these people who are uber interested in um, every literally every moment of the day of their glucose levels and these con- constant glucose monitors and any sort of deviation is an alarm bell for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so you just, how do we thread this needle? Like how important <laughs> is it to, you know, to maybe enjoy some, you know, natural sources or unrefined sources of carbohydrates and not think that's going to give us insulin resistance and obesity and um, a short lifespan? Yeah. So again, a, a very important question. And and, and there is some uh, interesting, again, we'll, we'll start with the animal models. There's some interesting animal model data to suggest that um, improving carbohydrate metabolism uh, improves lifespan, but only in male mice, interestingly. Um, mm. And so this has been done through the National Institute of Aging Interventions Testing Program, or ITP. And this is really important because what it does is they have a, they have a, a group of labs that all test the same intervention to see if they get reproducible results across multiple labs, which you know hasn't you know in general isn't really done. And so like one group does one test and we assume that it's right, 
Whereas, you know, when you're working in animal models, which is essentially what I I, I do, you appreciate that that's really not the case. Um, and these things are incredibly variable from lab to lab, animal to animal, strain to strain, you know, all that kind of stuff. So these guys have kind of standardized the process to allow it to be tested in multiple labs, which is nice. Uh, but either a carbos, which inhibits alpha-glucosidase and pancreatic amylase, so basically inhibits the breakdown of complex carbohydrate, or canaglilifosin, uh, which is uh, an SGLT2 inhibitor, so basic, which basically makes you pee out more carbohydrate or more glucose. Um, either of those actually increase uh, lifespan, again, in males. So uh, either inhibiting the absorption or increasing the excretion of glucose seems to in increase lifespan. And when you look at population data, as, pe as people get older, their response to something like an OGTT, sort of their response to a carbohydrate bolus worsens. And those who you know, live into the oldest age groups, you know, 75 plus, 80 plus, 85 plus, they actually have better metabolic health. Um, and the reason why that is is because the ones with worse metabolic health die before you can get into those groups. So maintaining carbohydrate metabolism as we measure it is very important for longevity, absolutely. But we know that eating carbohydrates does not make you insulin resistant in and of itself. There's almost no evidence to support that. And it's certainly you know, related to the overall um, intake of you know, being hypercaloric, um, excess body fat gain, and then also being sedentary uh, and having low lean, lean muscle mass, like all of those are, are part of it. Um, so, you know, when you're then looking at things like uh, glucose variability, there is there's something called the mean amplitude of glycemic excursions or MAGE that some people look at. So, all right. and when you look at MAGE, so it's basically like how high does your blood sugar spike after a meal? Like what's the average spike every time you put calories into the system? And if it is below sort of 30 to 50 milligrams a deciliter or below two to three millimolar, you're in great shape. Um, so, you know, if you're eating a meal and it's only if it's going up by two or three millimolar and then coming back down within an hour or two, I have no reason to worry about that. Uh, it's only when the spikes are higher or longer, which suggests abnormal glucose metabolism. Um, and, and you also see things like the higher your mage. Uh, the increased risk of cardiovascular disease or um, uh, uh, like heart attack. Uh, there's also some nice data to suggest that if you improve your mage with some, if you're type 2 diabetic and you improve your mage with some kind of intervention, then you see um, like the biggest improvements in cognitive function come with those who see the biggest improvements in mage. So like glycemic excursions and glycemic variability and the size of your glucose spikes do seem to be associated with various disease risks and cognitive function and all that kind of stuff. However, the other side yeah. of that, right, is um, the people who choose to pathologize everything they put in their mouth, um, which is basically, you know, you have a continuous glucose monitor and for months, years, you track your glucose responses to every single meal. Um, and I really don't think there's any benefit to that whatsoever. Um, there is some potential benefit to um, wearing it for, say, two weeks. You eat the meals that you normally eat, and everybody eats the same foods again and again and again. Mm. And you may spot one food that causes you to have really big sp spikes in glucose. And like which carbohydrates cause like large spikes are very different from person to person. It's very nice data to show that. So you can eat, you know, 
for two, you could wear it for two weeks. You could eat your regular foods. If there are any that cause like really big spikes, you know, four, five, six plus, you know, millimolar spikes, then you say, do you know what? I just won't eat that food anymore. Um, and if you use the data in that way, I think it's potentially useful. If you use it so that you can stress about every single carbohydrate you put in your mouth, I think there's there's a there's a real downside there, and that's what that's what people do. Like they agonize over eating this food, and then they watch their blood glucose spike after they've eaten it, and the the spike is probably more related to what they think is going to happen to their glucose rather than what is actually in the food. And so their stress and their like over focus on it is going to cause larger glucose spikes. And you sent me this really nice paper by Ellen Langer, which basically shows that in, in type two diabetics, if you give them the same drink, but you tell them it has different numbers of carbohydrates in it, they'll see different glucose spikes. So if they think there's a lot of sugar in it, they'll see a bl bigger blood sugar, a bigger blood sugar spike than if they think there's not much sugar in it, despite it being the same drink. Um, and the, the, I don't really like the data in the paper the way it's presented because it's kind of analyzed in the way that social sciences analyze data and it makes it quite <laughs> opaque in terms of like, yeah. I want to see all the data. I want to know how variable it is, what's different from person to person, whereas they just give like a single average. But anyway, it kind of, and they have the previous, previous data again in types of diabetics, which shows that blood sugar decreases um, at perceived rates of time rather than actual rates yeah. of time, right? <laughs> so, that one. yeah. So if you if you put them in a, you put them in a room and you make them do a task which forces them to look at the clock, if the clock is has been artificially sped up, their blood sugar will fall faster um, rather than if it's at a normal time. And if the if the time is artificially slowed down, the blood sugar will fall more slowly. So what you think is going to happen to your blood sugar has as much of an effect on your blood sugar as what you're actually doing to manipulate it. So, and because we know that blood blood sugar spikes are probably not a good thing for long-term health, I think that having a CGM and continuously obsessing about the carbohydrates that you put in your mm. mouth are probably going to have a negative effect on your glucose metabolism and therefore on your health. So I think they can be useful in the individual setting if you can use that data to say, you know what? For some reason, bananas make me have a really big blood sugar spike, so I just won't eat bananas anymore. If you're going to use it like that, maybe it's useful. So to continuously use it to to like overanalyze every bite of food you put in your mouth, I, you know, I think that's that's a pathology. I think that's an eating disorder. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. Well said. Yeah, it's amazing the um the effect of perception on on your physiology. All right, and finally. Um, Let's move on to supplementation because this is becoming a hot topic, whether it's nutraceuticals or um, pharmaceuticals. I might just quickly go through a couple of them. So probably the, the big one at the moment, and I'm sure it'll become even more well-known, is the, the NAD boosters mm. um, and the different iterations around that. So um, um, well, how are you going for time? Like, um, no, that's fine. We can, keep, yeah, we can keep going. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. I was just thinking that any sort of um, advice people take on is probably going to be chewed up by the amount of time they've <laughs> used listening to this podcast. That's going <laughs> longer than normal. Um, but it's absolutely fascinating. So NAD boosters. Um, what's NAD and, and and what are these um, supplements and what they're trying to do? Yeah. So so NAD uh, nicotinamide amine dinucleotide is a is is basically the the main way that we move electrons around a cell it's like our, it's our main transporter of of energy um that's going to end up in the mitochondria 
essentially. And so the ratio of NAD and its oxidized versus reduced state, so NAD plus versus NADH, is basically what we call a redox sensor. So it's telling you about the nutrient status um, of the cell. Um, and when you have low lower NADH and higher NAD, you that's when you see the activation of things like sirtuins and, and some of these other pro- pro-autophagy, uh, pro, uh, like mitochondrial biogenesis, you know, pro, um, longevity pathways, essentially. So having like more NAD plus relative to NADH. And, you know, again, one of the key, um, like regulators of that is just how much energy have you stuffed into a cell versus how much energy does it want, right? So if you do a lot of exercise, the amount of NAD plus is going to go up relative to NADH because you've used up those electrons as like to generate ATP. Um, so what we see over time is that this ratio decreases. So you relatively lose NAD plus, you know, uh, relative to NADH. And it's, it's partly because the cell becomes more reduced. You have like more electrons in NADH. Um, and then also you just lose the total amount of NAD to take part in this process. Um, and so what you know and and it happens pretty much in 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 any cell so it can happen in the t cell and then it's you know that's associated with autoimmune diseases it can happen in in the, in the brain and then it's associated with cognitive decline it can happen in the muscle tissue then it's associated with sarcopenia and inflammation and all these things so so the amount of nad you have and the and the ratio like how much um is nadh versus nad plus you know that seems to be a you know again it's a, it's a sensor um and which activates certain genes or, or doesn't and when you, you know, so again, this is a, a classic study by David Sinclair, which showed that the amount of NAD, like total in the pool decreases over time, as well as the ratio shifting of between reduced and oxidized NAD. And so if you supplement with an NAD precursor, so there are various ways to do it. Um, NAD is essentially a, meta a metabolite of the, of the B vitamin niacin. Uh, so you might see um, uh, niacinamide, uh, niacin, niacin, uh, nicotinamide. There are lots of different ways you can take it. Um, the most popular currently is nicotinamide riboside, like you mentioned, NR. Um, and there is some data to suggest that if you take NR in high doses, so like a gram a day, you can increase the amount of circulating NAD in your blood cells. It doesn't seem to increase the amount of NAD, say, in your muscle tissue, but it does seem to cause a shift in NAD metabolism. So you just have more of these metabolites in this pathway. Um, and when you do this in animals, you, you start to see some longevity uh, or you, you see an, an increase in lifespan or maybe a reversal of some of these aging-related processes. However, um, as with everything, I think <laughs> when you find a single part of a pathway, you then assume that you should just like boost that part of the pathway. You're going to fix all the problems, um, which is definitely not the case. So what's more interesting to me is why does NAD decrease when you age? Yeah. And the reason is because you produce less of it and you lose more of it. So the processes associated with losing more of it are like chronic inflammation and, cro and oxidative stress. So maybe you want to identify the things that are causing that, be that in your diet or your, or your environment um, or your lifestyle. At the same time, um, when you're trying to produce so this is so nad production is like one of the final pathways possible of tryptophan metabolism 
Um, and when you have some kind of setting of chronic stress or inflammation, you you block this pathway, so you can't produce NAD from that direction. Um, and there are so again, like that may be somewhere that you, if you address um, stress or chronic inflammation, you may rebalance production. Um, and then you also can rebalance recycling by doing things like sleeping. So NAMPT, which is a, an enzyme involved in a re the recycling of NAD, is upregulated and activated during fasting and during sleep. So particularly just making sure you have a robust circadian rhythm could help restore NAD production. So again, if if you would just like identify this one part of the pathway and say, yes, you know, if we can take a supplement, we can overcome that, you know, that's possible. Um, but, um, you know, what's much more interesting to me is why you're losing it in the first place. And again, there are all these lifestyle factors, um, diet quality, sleep, stress, movement. If you do all of those things, I think you're not going to see the decline in the first place. Um, and then is there any evidence that if you're healthy and in good shape and you're doing all those lifestyle factors that you're just going to take a load of NAD precursors on top of that? Um, is that going to be beneficial? I don't necessarily think so. Um, I don't think there's any evidence to say it will be. And it's possible that it could be detrimental because the metabolism of NAD is very methylation um, like intensive. So you basically need to chew through a load of methyl groups in order to pee out the excess NAD precursor that you took. Um, and like we talked about before, like the balance of that pathway in terms of nutrient intake, be it B12, folate, choline, creatine, glycine, you know, you need to make sure that you have all of those precursors and that system is working properly um, so that you can essentially metabolize all the excess supplement that you just took. Um, and again, I'm not saying that you need to supplement with those things to do it. You could just eat a high quality diet. Um, but there's just this potential that you can complete, you can really disturb this system by taking a whole boatload of nicotinamide riboside um, or niacin um, just, just because, you know, you don't necessarily need it. But additionally, you're not necessarily in, in a place to, to metabolize it. So there's like, you know, if you're putting these lifestyle practices in, into place, is adding nicotinamide riboside going to be beneficial? There's no evidence to suggest that it will. And there's a possibility that it could be detrimental. So, you know, uh, as ever, I think if you take a step back, you know, there are all these other things that are going to be much more important. Mm, fascinating. All right. Uh, one more. Let's move to the pharmaceutical metformin. Um, mm. the, the anti-diabetic drug that's known to, I think, activate AMPK, some, mm -hmm. you know, thought leaders use this, they're otherwise healthy and, and using it as a like longevity agent. Um, so, yeah, can you describe the rationale and the pros and cons? <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah. So, so there's some really interesting data from type 2 diabetics, and that those are the people who get metformin. And if you're a type 2 diabetic or you have insulin resistance and you aren't interested in any lifestyle changes, you should take metformin. Absolutely. 100%, I would recommend it because you know if you're a type 2 diabetic and you have and you take metformin you may have uh, an increased lifespan and reduced uh cancer risk maybe even compared to people who don't have type 2 diabetes and that's what some of the epidemiological data suggest so like very you know that that's that then made people think well this is you know uh a pro longevity drug we should you know therefore people should take it if they want to live longer and th again there's, there's some data in animal models to suggest that metformin is beneficial and they're actually in, in the process of running a very large trial in the us called the tame trial which is going to give metformin to 
otherwise healthy elderly people yeah. and then see whether they develop, you know, look at their long-term disease risk and mortality. Um, I have heard people who understand aging research very well say that they don't think it's going to show anything just because that's the way most, most research ends up working. Um, however, there is some very interesting data. There's two studies, one looking at aerobic exercise and one looking at resistance training that basically suggests that on average, so not, you know, when you look at all the data, there are some people who respond to the exercise training just fine uh, whilst mm. taking metformin. But on average, you see uh, less of an increase in VO2 max if you're doing aerobic training and you see less of an increase in muscle mass um, if you're doing resistance training. And maybe they have like a statistical trend towards less of an increase in strength gain from resistance training, again, in sort of like healthy older people um, taking metformin. So there are some people still who, you know, longevity experts who will take metformin. There are others who have stopped because of that data. And my my bias is definitely on the lift the weights and don't take the metformin. That's that's you know my my personal approach. Um, and so so some people, so David Sinclair and then also Nir Barzilai, who's basically the the god of metformin, he pointed out that from that study, from the resistance training study, that the there wasn't um, once you looked at power to weight ratio, metformin didn't have a negative effect. So the effect was more on muscle mass gain than it was on strength gain, if that makes sense. Um, the, the populations were slightly skewed because if you look at those in the metformin group, they were probably stronger to start with. So maybe they had less to gain as possible. Um, but equally, I think you know if you're activating AMPK, um, you know. Continuously, which you would do with high doses of metformin, potentially. Whereas, you know, if you're trying to gain muscle and strength, you're going to need some activation of mTOR. You have to like stimulate those pro-growth pathways. That's beneficial in that setting. Um, so, I think there's some potential for, you know, I, I definitely believe that there's that there's going to be some interference there. Um, and so, if you're somebody who is otherwise healthy and wants to take part in exercise and benefit from it, like increase strength, increase muscle mass, increase aerobic fitness, I would not take metformin because right now, on average, it seems like it will inhibit um, that process. And, you know, mechanistically, that makes sense as well. Um, so, so yeah, again, if, if, you, if you're, the, and, and, you know, maybe we don't have time to go through all of them, but as you look through every single pharmaceutical that tries to target these pathways, so a resveratrol being another one, um, it definitely seems like uh, you can either activate those pathways through lifestyle changes, you know, uh, being eucaloric, exercising, sleeping, stress mitigation, all that stuff, or you can be metabolically unhealthy and or not institute any of those lifestyle changes and then pharmaceuticalize those pathways right right now i don't think you can do both um yeah. so you kind of have to pick one um and you it's obvious which one i would prefer you pick <laughs> um but there is still some evidence to suggest that if you're not going to do those things then maybe some of these these uh these drugs can be beneficial yeah it's a nice nice decision tree i think all right um yeah i've taken up plenty of time so i might just um summarize it's probably i don't think we've mentioned it but first of all maybe choose your parents really wisely that probably has a, <laughs> yeah. has a, fair, a fair benefit yeah um absolutely. maintain a healthy body composition 
eat a whole food or uh, sorry, a, yeah, essentially an unrefined diet, ideally sort of a eucaloric caloric balance. And mm-hmm. then if you're unhealthy, it's either um, intense lifestyle measures to try and um, improve metabolic health and weight, or you could take the sort of the, the pharmaceutical slash green pharmaceutical approach to try and offset some of those um, those aberrations in um, longevity. Mm-hmm. Any other? And then and don't stress about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean that that that's it uh, really. And I think the you know hopefully the you know the the information is 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 fairly empowering. Like you you have a lot of well. The people listen to this podcast have a lot of control over over these variables. Not everybody does, right? That's, so, yeah, really important. You know, and, and this is this is something that we, you know we increasingly need to talk about. But you know, for for the for the people listening to this, that you know, you probably have the the privilege and the resources to to take advantage of these things and change your environment and change your lifestyle if you want to, you know, improve your long term health span. And you can do that. Um, I wish that these things were available to everybody and and hopefully they will be over time as we improve some of those things um but yeah the, the you know the main the, the main takeaway is that all the lifestyle stuff that everybody talks about is still the most important stuff and you don't need to be worrying about paying several hundred dollars a month for a telomerase inhibitor or metformin or rapamycin or anything like that because all the evidence to date suggests that as long as you um implement you know healthy diet and movement and sleep and stress mitigation and you have a good social network you've basically done everything that you need to do in order to maximize your health span and you know anything else beyond that we're still way way away from from figuring that out so just if you continue focusing on those things you're already doing the stuff that's going to make you live a, as long and healthy a life as possible beautiful tommy i appreciate your time and also yeah the fact you've dove into all these studies and know it inside out um i'm really glad i did ask you and, um, and you've, yeah you've exceeded my expectations so yeah we just want to thank you again um where can people find more about you or follow you yeah uh instagram is usually the easiest place to find me at dr tommy word on instagram uh i do try and respond to all the messages i get on there so that's probably the the easiest place to find me brilliant thank you tell me much appreciated yeah thank you this has been great For useful links and resources, make sure you check out the show notes. The information provided in this episode is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for health and medical care. Always consult a healthcare professional for medical advice.